Welcome to Sticks and Taps, where the conversation is hockey and the keg is always cold. The games will be on soon, so let's step up to the bar, grab a pint, get into it. Your host, Paul Cuthbert and Liam McGuire. Slander, fellas, and don't forget to pay your tabs. Ah, uh, thank you very much, Seamus. I'm working on that tab. I'm waiting for me check from the government, and I'll take care of that for you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sticks and Taps, Thursday, April 23rd. Yours truly, Mr. Paul Cuthbert, down here in the great city of New York and Long Island. And ladies and gentlemen, please say hello and welcome your friend and mine, Mr. Liam McGuire. Liam, how's she going, pal? How's she going, Polly? How's she going? <laughs> oh, man. I love that. You know, you taught me that, uh, that phrase. And I know I, sh- I shouldn't say that force. That's your phrase. But, no, man. But you get me in the mood, buddy. <laughs> You're sounding more and more like somebody from the Ottawa Valley every day. <laughs> oh, that's man. a big uh, That's a big introduction out here, up here, around these parts, especially in the rurals or in what's known as the Valley. Uh, it's uh, G'day, how's she going? And usually followed uh, the response is uh, not bad you. And, uh, or, uh, or you're just giving her. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, too much. I got a great story for you, man. So, uh, and it's funny, you were talking, me and you were talking off air, I think, um, or it was part of your stories last week, or we were talking off air and and you were saying, I think you were in Ireland in 89 or 90? 89. Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty sure I was, and, and you were there in the summer as well, right? I was there in June of 89. Yeah. There's a good possibility. Me and you were both in the Emerald Isle at the same time that year. Uh, because wow. me and the family had uh, gone over. We went over two weeks, I believe, because I think in 90, 1990 was the World Cup of soccer. Yes, because in 94, it was again. That was the year the Rangers won the Cup, and, and the, uh, right. America hosted it here in 94 in the summer. So in, in the summer of 1990, uh, I can't remember. I think it was in Holland. I believe the World Cup was in Holland. Now, the reason I remember that is because I went back to Ireland in 1990 by myself and had a, a hell of a time. <laughs> but in 89, the year before, uh, the entire family went over. Mom, dad, and my brother and sister, we, we went over there. And um, so it was funny. So I think we were over there. So lo and behold, in, in 90, when I went back, um, hung out with my cousins. We had a, a blast one night in Dublin. And... Uh, I met a lovely lady from Cork, and we were on the dance floor, right? And she, uh, and just getting, this goes back to, you know, uh, you saying I'm getting a bit of the uh, Ottawan accent there, right? Yeah. Whatever, yeah. I don't know. A lot of people, for me, whenever I went to Ireland, I would I would pick up, I would start talking with the broke, you yeah. know, just being around everybody, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And that would happen after, you know, a couple of days in the in the pubs and just hanging out with family and everything. So, I'm on the dance floor with this uh, this girl at the time, and, and I'm trying to tell her. She goes, where are you from? And I said, I'm, you know, I'm from New York. But I'm saying it, and she's like, you're not from New York. You know? And I was like, no, I, 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 you know, I'm talking with an Irish actor. So that went on, and then um, the next day, I had to take a, a cab back. I ended up in Ballymun after <laughs> a long night of drinking. So the guy picks up. I'm walking. I swear to God, I, back then it was just... I've been always told by my cousins, don't, you know, bully man, that's a tough neighborhood or whatever. So I wake up the next day, I get a cab, and um, I jump in the cab with the guy. And the guy starts talking to me, and he's, he's, I said, I got to go back to, uh, uh, you know, Malahide, Dublin. Uh, that's where we're staying, and uh, my cousins and stuff. So uh, he says, what are you doing uh, out here? And I said, well, I'm, I said, you know, uh, 
I'm on holidays uh, from from New York. I said, I'm, I'm from New York. And he says, he goes, no, you're not. Now, you got to understand, I'm not doing it now. But I'm talking as if, as if I'm from Ireland, you know, and I can right. put the Irish accent on. So he says to me, he goes, he goes, you're not from America. And I'm in the back seat, and I go, I am, I am. <laughs> <laughs> How come you don't believe me? I'm from America. I'm from New York. I swear to God I am. He says, ah, you're full of shit, man. <laughs> <laughs> that would always happen when I would go over to Ireland and get around my cousins and family and people at the pub. And next thing you know, you start talking like you're from Dublin. Ah, oh, be Jesus now. Go on and buy us another pint. Oh, go on now. Give us another song. So that always cracks me up with your saying, oh, how's she going, man? How's, how's it going? She going? <laughs> Tell you a funny story. Uh, so when we were there, in uh, one of our visits was in the 70s. We were there in 70, 78, I believe it was. and And just sort of on the cusp of where me being the oldest, parents weren't quite willing to leave us fully unattended, right? I had two younger brothers, and, and obviously I was the oldest of all the cousins, all the McGuire cousins too, but and I've told you a little bit about my cousin Seamus, no longer with us, God rest his soul, but uh, anyways, so we're at this house, we're staying at this house in Dublin that uh, my parents had rented uh, for us, and my parents were going out and with my dad's brothers and, and their wives and whatnot. And they, they wanted to get us a babysitter. You could believe it. I couldn't believe it. But because I was basically going to be the oldest in the house, they said, we got to have somebody else there, Liam. You know, someone else has to be there. A little bit older, just in case, because we know you guys. <laughs> I said, okay, dad, <laughs> all right, Jesus. So so this guy comes and, and uh, you know, I, I, I don't remember much about him, but... I think he, he was kind of prim and proper. And my cousin Seamus was there with us. He hung with us, and he was the oldest of his family of five. And so there was a couple couple other brothers he had and, and a couple sisters. And they were kind of floating around, but it was really it was just me and Seamus and my two brothers, Mike and Sean. I'll never forget this, and I'm thinking about it now as you're talking about the accent and whatnot anyway. So this babysitter comes into this house that my 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 parents had rented where we were going to stay for this particular trip to Ireland. And, and he's sizing us up and he's, and he says, all right, it's probably time you guys go upstairs, maybe try to get some sleep and stuff like that. Whatever is 10, 10 30 at night. And Seamus was there and, and, and he looks at Seamus and he says, man, you know, you don't look like you're from Canada. Like you, you, you look Irish and you, you know, I've heard you say a couple words, you even sound Irish. And Seamus of course is like 16 at the time. Right. Or something. And he says, I am Irish, you stupid Egypt. <laughs> and he says, uh, he says, uh, and he called him Johnny, eh? To be as, to be as, to be as, um, you know, as as derisive as possible. He called it. He said, I am Irish, you stupid Egypt. He said, Hey, Johnny, have you, you got any rubbers? <laughs> you got any condoms? <laughs> oh, Because he was going to go out <laughs> to his girlfriend's place, and of course, he wanted some condoms to go there. And he says this to the guy who, A, he's mortified that, <laughs> that, that Seamus has now spoken back to him like that as a guy who's literally lives by, born and raised five minutes away. <laughs> and secondly, he's asked him for rubbers. He turned as white as a ghost. Oh, I'll God. never forget it. Never forget it. <laughs> and uh, anyways, he chased us up the stairs there and got told us to get out of get out of Dodge and, and, and try and try and behave. And uh, it's just one of those funny things you remember when you're talking about, 
you know, accents and, and things of that nature because he was listening to his talk and he just assumed that Seamus was part of our family, right? Yeah. <laughs> and and he didn't make the assumption at all that Seamus was was actually with the other younger kids who were hanging around waiting for the pickup to go back home, which Seamus was as well, but he was kind of staying with us type physically type in the building if you if you understand what I'm saying. And oh yeah, man. It, just a really, really funny exchange. Really funny. Uh, I remember it vividly. And, geez, uh, we had some. You know, it's funny. I was just talking to my brother, Mike, last week about that particular trip because we we went to the um, – uh, there was a horse a horse jumping show. Uh, it was, it was some, it's got some – I'm not a – I don't know anything about it. But it was uh, – it was it's a, ma- a massive international competition. And, and uh, my cousin said – would you like to go we'll get on a bus we'll go get tickets are inexpensive we'll go and and uh so all of us went so it was like i think there were th- about three of them that were old as old enough and us three so it was probably six of us six mcguires three boys no see five four boys two girls and we got in a bus we went to this wherever the park was the big horse jumping show and don't the skies open i mean they open it is it is pouring and raining so hard, like we were drenched in, like drenched in 90 seconds, and no, we were, no one was moving because there was two riders to go, the British rider and the Irish rider, and this is in 1978. I, I can't remember all the. It was in August of 78. My brother Mike was on the line. He'd be able to provide probably a few more of the details, but I was sneaking a few whiskeys and don't really recall all the details. But, but the uh, the English rider went. And and ran almost a perfect race and was in the lead, and it was all up to the Irish rider. He went last. This was in Dublin. It's pouring rain, and he had to. They had to run. The, the rider and the horse had to run a perfect course. And of course, you know, you could probably tell by how I'm saying it that that don't they do that? And and it came down to the last jump. Makes the last jump. Crowd goes absolutely ballistic, like just ballistic, and. And then the horse comes around and the guy's on the speaker and he's announcing that Ireland has won and whatever the rider's name was and the horse and everything. And the crowd just breaks into a rendition of the national anthem. I'll tell you, the hair in the back of my neck is going up even telling you right now. Yeah. And, and it, I mean, just the nationalistic feeling, even more so by by beating a British rider. You know, of course, for them, it's just another com- competitor. They're long past that there. They were just competing. But for us in the stands, probably meant a lot more. And and uh that was part of that same that same trip. It was uh, that was a pretty special trip, man. We got up to Donegal and uh, for the first time, such beautiful countryside up there. And my dad's best friend, uh, we couldn't go to Belfast. Obviously, in '78, there was no way you were crossing the border, no. not not uh, not with our surname. And and uh, so my dad's best friend, who lived in Lisbon, um, uh, subdivision of uh, Belfast, he uh, he made the trek with his wife, Albert McFarlane. And his wife Maury, and they came to Donegal and spent spent a few days with us. Uh, oh, what a what a man he was! What a man he was, boy! Holy cow! <laughs> Good times, man. Good times, and it is. It's beautiful country. Uh, yeah, you know, I've been blessed to have been there. And uh, if you do get there yourselves, if you haven't been there, if you're listening, uh, yeah, you got to get. Um, 
Got to get on the road. Um, obviously, you have to know how to drive a stick, and you have to know how to drive it backwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've Holy done that. <laughs> oh, baby. Yeah, that's 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 an experience itself, eh, Polly? Uh, one, I tell you, me and my wife are so lucky. One time we were heading up to uh, Sligo. I have uh, family and relations up in Sligo, and that's a, just a gorgeous run from uh, Dublin heading up to north to Sligo. Um, and uh, I tell you, just – by fate, I well, we almost got crushed coming out of a, uh, a petrol station, not a gas station, a petrol station. And, uh, man, yeah. life just flew <laughs> right in front of me. Just because you have to just realize everything's it's only opposite. But I tell you, man, so I wouldn't um, – the experience was just great, just driving through the countryside. Um, a lot of fun. You can also get a bus. I've taken the bus from Dublin back and forth to Sligo. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Um, but it is. It's actually spectacular. It, it's like being transformed into, uh, you know, like a – a storybook. There's no doubt yeah. about it. And that, that's yeah. what's great about the country. And as far as the accents to uh, Liam, I always, I, I wish either, I don't wish the, uh, Ireland as being a, a military dictatorship or a country like that, but it'd be great if somebody did a movie as if Ireland was, because I would love to go out and try and get the part of being an Irish spy. <laughs> You know, an American going in as an Irish spy because I could put yeah. the accent on. You know, go on now, man. Tell me where the plans are. <laughs> I I I had to play one in a in a in a in a short play. An Irish spy. In, yep. Yep. <laughs> no in, way. in uh in in college in college at Seneca College in Toronto, Get they stuck out. this course on us in our second year. I've taken radio and television broadcasting, and they jammed this theater theater course down our throats. And I, I absolutely fought tooth and nail against it. But at the long story, but at the end of the day, they were going to revoke my grant money if I didn't attend. So I, I was about eight or nine days in by the time I finally attended. It was a big amphitheater in, in that where we had to go to class. I can't even remember the teacher's name. She was a really nice lady. And I, I regret that first week because I was kind of a bitch in class there. I was really upset having to attend and I really wasn't, um, being too cooperative. And then, uh, she finally told us that we were, you know, because this was the, the the reason they gave it to us is they said, look, for those of you that want to be front of camera or live on a microphone, this is good training. You know, they thought that in 1982, this was good training, good, good procedural training to understand how to handle yourself in live environment and whatnot. I'm saying, yeah, that's fine. If I, I you tell me I can talk, uh, let me talk hockey. I'll stand in front of a million people. Yeah. I, I, I don't need to do some stupid play to try and show you that I'm comfortable in a live environment. This is where the whole thing was going. But they said we had to take it. So when she came to me and said, well, and I said, well, you better find something with an Irish character in it. Or I swear to God, this will be the longest semester of your life as a teacher. <laughs> and anyway, long story short, she uh, got it. We got this play and I played this Irish spy and. And we had to, um, I remember when we had to perform it, I remember the guy I, I had to do the, the role with, his name was Clint Wood. And I, I don't think at that point he'd had probably four drinks in his life. And I rolled in that day, it was supposed to be a prop of a bottle of whiskey. Only thing was, it wasn't a prop. It was actually, actually a bottle of whiskey. So when we poured it sitting around the table and I had to try and manufacture the accent and I am nowhere near as good as you, but I did not bad. 
because I put my heart and soul into it. But what I really put into it was pouring that whiskey. <laughs> and, and as it comes to the scene where everybody's got to take the shot, and I was watching everybody because they didn't know. They thought it was ginger ale, right? Oh. They said, oh, it's ginger ale, guys. It's ginger ale. That's awesome. Anyways, it was really whiskey. And everybody takes the shot, and I poured a shot. I mean, it was a shot and a half in these <laughs> shot glasses. And Clint Wood downs it. He thinks it's ginger ale. And by the time it hit the back of his throat, <laughs> the red started right at the bottom of his neck. And it just came up like an elevator. And it came up into his facial area and up over his mouth and his nose and his eyes as the whiskey was cascading down his esophagus. And I think it hit his stomach like an explosion. And he just grabbed onto the chair and started wobbling. And he, I thought he was going to pass out. <laughs> well, keep in mind, it's nine in the morning, right? <laughs> <laughs> so the teacher comes running down and she says, what's in that? And I said, oh, miss, I mean, come on. You know, we got to make it authentic. Exactly. I said, it's called Lewiski. <laughs> oh, my God, was she pissed off. Anyways, that was the last, the last. The one and only time I had to act that semester in that thing, and she was so she was so happy to get me out of that class. But uh, anyway, wow, what a digression we went down that rabbit hole. But uh, anyway, there you go. I played an Irish pie, Paul. Oh, I that played is an just Irish too pie. funny. I'm just joking around, and here you have a story about pretending to be an Irish pie. You're unbelievable. Did you get to take the bottle <laughs> of whiskey home? Man. Did she let you take the whiskey home? No, she wouldn't. She confiscated oh. it confiscated it and said, you cannot be walking around the school with this. I said, how do you think I got it in here? <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I used to do, eh? Like the, the, uh, the coldest water in any school, especially back in the day, in the, in the men's washrooms, above the urinals, the white basins, had the coldest water. So I would stand on the urinal and take my two or three pints, and I would stick them in there, and I stuck them all around the school. In every washroom. So at any given time, I could pop in, stand up, reach up, reach in, pull her out, grab a pint. And uh, I would bring them to class with me. Some of the longer boring classes, you know, with a lot of procedural stuff, I would bring a couple beers in. No twist-offs in those days. And I always sat at the back of the class anyway. So I would just get the guys to cough. And I would just hold the bottle down and just just bang it, snap the top right off it, sit at the back of the class and have a couple pints. Oh, no. <laughs> when you get done with this screenplay for uh, <laughs> Ogie's book, uh, you got to do one for yourself, pal. <laughs> I'd watch it. <laughs> Liam McGuire yeah. story, baby. I'm thinking of Fast Times at Ridgemont High, you know? Yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. You, you're the well, Canadian Sean Penn. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Well, it was stuff. an unbelievable two years for sure. Good stuff. All right, yeah. man. We don't have any hockey. The games hopefully will be back soon. We just don't know when. And I mean, there's there's a little gibberish talk about some kind of tournament or whatever. I don't see it's how it's going to happen. But uh, as we're doing things now here on Sticks and Tap, uh, and I know you're doing your great uh, This Day in Hockey, and anybody who hasn't seen it yet, if you're listening, uh, check out Liam's um, LinkedIn page and YouTube, Liam McGuire. Uh, it's great stuff. But we uh, do our own little NHL history here. And yeah. sticks and taps. So, Liam, what do you have for us today? Well, you know, we're on a bit of a run, Paulie, because there's been a lot of New York Ranger connections 
I think in the last few weeks and today is no exception. And I, <clears throat> I wanted to tell you and, and the listeners a little bit about the legendary Doug Harvey and Doug Harvey was, I think most people, even if you came along much later in the last couple of decades onto the sport of hockey in the NHL, you're probably aware of the name because he's almost always mentioned when people talk about the greatest defenseman of all time. Even if you grew up in the Ray Bork, Nick Lidstrom era, um, you know, you're probably aware that in and around Bobby Orr and usually right after him and mentioned along with Eddie Shore is the name Doug Harvey. So Doug Harvey started with the Montreal Canadiens in the late 40s and and uh, became very quickly one of the best defensemen in the NHL. And and he won his first Norris Trophy the second year that, that it was it was the first year of the Norris Trophy it was 1954, and the first winner was Red Kelly. And Doug won his first one in, of seven in, in 1955. And not long after uh, Doug, in fact, about a year or two after Doug Harvey started playing, another gentleman started in the NHL by the name of George Red Sullivan, who also has a tremendous, a much stronger connection even to the New York Rangers, and we'll get to that in just a second. So Doug Harvey's in the NHL with the Montreal Canadiens, and Red Sullivan, who's from Peterborough, Ontario, in fact, even still to this day, Paulie, in 2020, Red Sullivan is regarded as the greatest athlete ever from the city of Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. Now, that's, say, okay, Peterborough's not a, you know, we're not talking about a metropolis uh, city here in Canada, but believe me, this has got a strong hockey connection and he's regarded as the greatest athlete, not just hockey player, but athlete. So Red Sullivan starts playing in the NHL in the in the 1949-50 season with the Boston Bruins. Now, he's in and out of the Bruin lineup for a couple of years. Then he makes them full-time. He's still bouncing around a little bit. And then the Bruins end up selling him to the Chicago Blackhawks. And now he's an established NHLer. And he goes to Chicago in 1954-55. Now, by now, he's played against... Doug Harvey, he's played against Gordie Howe, he's played against Rocket Richard, and Red Sullivan as a player, Paulie, I'm going I'm to give you an example. He had become a 1950s version of Brad Marchand, okay? Okay. That, does that, do you understand what I'm saying? Yep, a talented yep. guy, a guy who could play the game at a very high level, but was also had become a real antagonist, Okay. Okay. And and uh, like he he could get under people's skins, and as he got a little older, and a little more mature, and a little more comfortable in the league, it became much more of his mo. So he's with the Blackhawks for two years, and they're 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 an absolute crap team at that time. But he leads them in scoring in back to back years, and then they trade him in June of 1956 to the New York Rangers, and this is where things start to get interesting. So he becomes a New York Ranger in 1956. And he is now actually has become one of the more dominant uh, second line players in the National Hockey League. Like this guy is scoring almost 20 goals, which is big in the 1950s. He's playing. Uh, he can t- he can play your power play. He can he can be a penalty killer. And he was driving guys nuts. And has he played for the New York Rangers? Now he's on a team where he is looked upon as more of a veteran 
Now he's been in the league six or seven years, and the Montreal Canadiens have now won their first of five Stanley Cups, okay? And they're kind of the cock of the walk. So Red Sullivan takes it upon himself that he is going to um, start running Jacques Plante, the Montreal Canadian legendary Hall of Fame goaltender. He's going to run him. He's going to hit him. He's going to do anything he can to throw Jacques Plante off his game. Doug Harvey, who has now played against Red Sullivan for a number of years, they have not had any prior incidents out of the ordinary, but has Sullivan is making it his mandate to run Jacques Plante, Doug Harvey, they start having some scrums, start having some words, occasionally after whistles, there's some face washes, there's some punches, there's some coincidental roughing minors, but they don't fight. And then the moment at hand. And Red Sullivan also, on top of becoming a real antagonist, discovered that one of the things that he became very effective at, and usually, almost always, away from the eyes of the referee, is he would take his hockey stick and bang it on the back of your skates as you were either standing in front of the net trying to guard him or you were going into the corners or whatever. More commonly referred to today, Paulie has the slew foot, okay? And Red, Red Sullivan became very accomplished at it. And him and Doug Harvey, it was reaching a pinnacle in 56-57. It was coming to a head. And he knocked out the skates under Doug Harvey on a Saturday night in Montreal at the Forum. And as Harvey went down and then got up and the refs, the linesmen came in to make sure there'd be no further trouble, Harvey said, it's all good, Sullivan. I'll see you tomorrow night. Because they were playing in New York the next night, which was common, right? In those Uh days, you played a lot of teams back to back. You'd play them on the Saturday in one rink. You'd get on the train. You'd travel to the next city. And you'd play them the next day, which Montreal did. The next game, first shift that Sullivan's on the ice. And he's wheeling and dealing and hammering and flying down the ice. And he's coming in on Doug Harvey. And he's going to chip the puck and go in. And Lord knows, do whatever he can to try and disrupt him or upend him. Or if he gets a chance, go over and 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 get in Jacques Plant's face. But as he goes to go by Doug Harvey, Harvey takes his stick and spears him in the stomach as humanly hard as he possibly could. He absolutely pitchforked him. <laughs> and Sullivan goes down in like like a contortionist. And he's writhing. I mean, he is in extreme and immediate severe pain. They re- they wheel out the stretcher. They throw him on it. And they rush him to the hospital. He's in the hospital. And I believe the doctor's name, not positive this, so I think it was a doctor named Madden, M-A-D-D-E-N. I think it was Dr. Madden. And he's assessing Sullivan. They're ripping his equipment off. He's, he's absolutely almost in convulsions on the hospital uh, surgery uh, table. And Madden says, he's not going to make it. What? Inter- internal hemorrhaging. Oh. He's not going to make it. And they asked Sullivan what, what his religion was. 
and he, he said he was a Catholic. And he said, listen, we're going to get a priest. And they got a priest. And they rushed a priest into the hospital in New York City on this night. And the priest administered last rites to George Red Sullivan on the hospital bed, on the hospital surgery table in New York as they were rushing to try and save his life. And the only other time that Red Sullivan had seen a priest administered last rites was for his father when his father died and he was in the room and his dad did die and he saw the priest in there administering last rites and he said, I'm done, I'm done, I'm done. They, they put him under, they removed his spleen, they stitched up the rest of the internal organs that had been absolutely destroyed by that unbelievable spear by Harvey and they save his life. He obviously doesn't die, and he misses, I think, a month of action, and and he ends up being able to come back and play in the NHL, comes back and plays, and <clears throat> Doug Harvey rolls on his merry way to another Norris Trophy and helps Montreal to another Stanley Cup, and life went on as normal. When Sullivan's in the hospital, and, and the word went out the next day, how close he was to death. And it's amazing to me, Polly, how very few people are familiar with this story. But this is maybe one of the closest, maybe the closest time a I player came to death. <laughs> so Sullivan comes back and plays for the New York Rangers. <clears throat> plays excellently, by the way. In fact, he is so important to the team that in two years, they name him captain. He becomes captain of the New York Rangers. And... Now, him and Doug Harvey never have another moment on the ice. They, they don't come together again. And when Doug Harvey was one of the men who tried to, along with Ted Lindsay and Gus Mortson, tried to start the ill-fated Players Union, all of them were summarily traded from their parent club, to, to show them that, hey, you guys aren't going to start a any type of uh, union here. <clears throat> Who do they trade Doug, Doug Harvey to? He goes <laughs> to the New York Rangers. Wow. And they make him a playing coach. Now, he's a playing coach. Now, Red Sullivan had had left the Rangers at this point and was playing in the minors. His, his last NHL action was in 60-61. The following year... Doug Harvey's with the Rangers, and he's a playing coach. Doesn't go very well. So they say, Doug, just play. We're going to get Muzz Patrick is going to coach. You just play. Muzz didn't do any better, and Doug was there. And uh, uh, Red Sullivan was a player coach for the Rangers farm teams in Kitchener-Waterloo in the Eastern Pro Hockey League and for the Baltimore Clippers in the American Hockey League. He was still playing, and he was coaching in the minors. And they said, Red, we, we want to promote you. We'd like you to retire from a player and come up and coach. And he came up and coached New York Rangers in the 62-63 season. And he came to the, to the rink and practiced that day and had to walk in the dressing room. And who's in there? Doug Harvey. They hadn't had a face-to-face -face any type. I mean, they played against each other after the incident, yeah. but there was never anything. And now they're on the same team. The New York Rangers, Paulie, your team, 
1963, and they got to stand up and shake hands, which they do, but not a word is said. <laughs> not one. Okay, not one word. So <clears throat> Doug plays for about a year and a half in New York. They ship him out. His his stock is diminishing quickly. His skill is left, and some of the troubles that he was going to run into with his drinking was was starting to really take effect. I mean, eventually, you know, if you're going to continue to go like that, it's going to be very hard to continue. Red Sullivan's tenure in New York as a coach didn't last much longer either, and he went on to uh, to to uh, to stay involved in coaching. On, uh, and after uh, being let go from the New York Rangers in 1966, he's then hired as the Pittsburgh Penguins' first ever coach in the NHL. Wow, that's a trip. The first time Pittsburgh Penguins played in the NHL in 1967-68, their coach was Red Sullivan. So he coaches them for a couple of years and then is is out of coaching again. They let him go. I mean, like, you know, the coaches were coming and going, as you can, as you probably even well know yourself, I'm sure. Uh, you know, they were they were hired to be fired even even more so than today. You had a couple year run in the most cases less than that. Uh, and they were just trying to find anybody who could just hang on and and wield this, you know, generally what was a, a vastly inferior squad as they continued to try and build up to become contenders in, in the NHL as expansion teams. And Red Sullivan did the two years in Pittsburgh. Doug Harvey went briefly to the Detroit Red Wings. He goes to the St. Louis Blues. He goes his way in hockey. Red Sullivan goes his way in hockey. Go a few years later, Pauly, 1974-75. Two more teams come in the NHL, the Kansas City Scouts and the Washington Capitals. Washington Capitals hire uh, um, Milt Schmidt, excuse me, Jimmy Anderson as their first coach. They fire him about a third of the way into the season. Uh, about 20 games in, who replaces him? Red Sullivan. He becomes the <laughs> second coach ever in Washington Capitol history. Wow. He's the first coach ever in Pittsburgh history and the second coach ever in Washington history. Then he's not there very long and he's let go and and he he eventually you know heads back to the Peterborough area and settles into post hockey life and life goes on for him. And life goes on for for Doug Harvey. You go through a few years, and now we're in 1984, and the Montreal Canadiens decide, um, you know, for a promotion that they're going to name an all-time dream team and have them come on the ice for a pregame celebration in equipment and skates, and they're all going to come down and take a shot on shock plot. So uh, Doug Harvey is named uh, one of the greatest defensemen in Montreal history, obviously, and He's on the ice that night, and it was in January of 1985 that they did this game, and it was it was shown on Hockey Night in Canada all across the country, and it was so popular, and it kind of gave these guys a bit of um, there was there was a, a a renewed interest in 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 service groups and 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 minor hockey associations and whatnot to seek out to get some of these men to come to their dinners. And their banquets and their their events and their festivals and they'd be paid some money and they would come in and do a little speech and <clears throat> a little Q and A and and sign some autographs and and as Doug Harvey was being sought after, he was being asked to go to different parts and he, he you know by then his health was really starting to fail and and he didn't want to travel too far but he could he could go to some places and so in 1985 
1986, he would start to do these things. And then in 1987, Paulie, 30 years after the spear on Red Sullivan, almost to the day, I get a phone call at home. And it's from the, a, a sports club here in Ottawa called the Gloucester Orleans Sports Club. And they're saying, Liam, we're in a jam here. We got a special guest tomorrow night, and our MC has just come up sick. And uh, you've been doing a lot on local radio and this and that. We're wondering if you could come and, and do a special uh, interview and MC our little event here at the Gloucester Orleans Sports Club. I said, my God, yes, absolutely. I'd love to. Who, who have you got coming? Well, we've got Butch Stahan. Oh, yeah, Butch Stahan. Had that big fight with Bellevue in 1950 and played in the minors a little bit in the NHL. Yeah, I know Butch Stahan. And Doug Harvey. I went, what? Wow. Doug, Doug Harvey. I said, my God, I'm going to get to meet Doug Harvey. So I go to the event, and there he is. Larger than life. Not drinking at this point, but sadly the damage had been done. But he looked good. He looked good that night. He was very quiet, and he came up on stage with me. And he's sitting there, and I, and I, and, you know, of course, being raw, you know, I'm in my mid-20s. I, I haven't done many of these. I don't know the protocol, really, and, but I know my dates. And I know that we're basically 30 years, almost to the day, from the spear. So I said, um, and I called him Mr. Harvey. I said, we're on stage, Paulie, okay, in front of people about 30 years later. And I said, uh, Mr. Harvey, I was just curious, you know, if you ever had a chance to see Red Sullivan. And he just looks at me and I went, holy shit, what did I say? <laughs> and and he said, uh, he said, well, I'll tell you something, young fella. He said, as a matter of fact, I talked to Red Sullivan about a week ago. And I said, you're kidding. This now, you could hear a pin drop in the room. And everybody's listening intently. Now, I regret not asking did he talk to him on the phone or did he see him face to face? Cause he never said, and I never asked because I was in a half state of shock yeah. as I was doing the interview anyway with the legendary Doug Harvey. And then he tells me, yeah, I talked to red about a week ago. And I said, uh, wow. Well, how, how'd that go? And I said, um, or he said, I said, uh, red, you were one dirty bastard. <laughs> and, and red said, Doug, really sorry i kicked your skates out from under me but i think i think you extracted enough body parts to make up for it <laughs> and, and so doug's telling this story and the whole the whole place breaks up laughing because now doug has taken a very nervous moment and uh -huh. turned it into something that we could all sort of appreciate and and uh so i very quickly moved on to my next questions and and uh butch Dehan was up there on the stage with us and he said a couple of things. And then I remember just before, just a quick digression, Paulie. I said to Doug, I said, uh, <clears throat> if you could tell me a Rocket Richard story. And I said, I'll tell you a Rocket Richard story. I'll tell you the greatest Rocket Richard story. I, he said, uh, he said, I've been listening to you tonight. He says, uh, I know you know your hockey. He said, you ever hear about the night the Rocket fought the entire production line one after another? And I said, hold on a second. He fought Howe, Lindsay, and Abel one after another. And he said, yeah. I said, are you sure? And he said, yeah, I should know. I was there. <laughs> and I said, uh, okay. So I, and uh, so he, he gave me a rough of the story, Paulie, and he didn't really have many of the details, but he gave me a rough of the story and I let it go and we shook hands and the gig finished 
And I came back and sat down with him after, and I offered to buy him a beer. Stupid me. Didn't know. He said, no, I'm not drinking anymore. I said, okay, sir. And we shook hands. And two years later, he died, right? Two years later, he died. But before he died, so in those days, Paulie, the way I used to study was I would go to the library every three months, four times a year, public library in Ottawa on Metcalf Street. And I would go into the microfilm. And I would put the microfilm up on the screen and I would go back to the dates of the games because I had all the dates of every game in the NHL. And I knew when things happened and I would go back and I would research and find the events and find the actual newspaper reports the next day, which was the most accurate thing. So I did two things and I went back and I read all about that spear on Sullivan. And I read all Doug Harvey's comments after that he gave to the reporters of the day that he warned Sullivan two or three times to quit going after Jacques Plante and, and quit doing that. And, the, the, and I got the, the, the actual quotes from Sullivan when he was released from the hospital wow. and him talking about how he had, how he, what he had done to initiate that, which is why I gave you the Brad Marchand sort of analogy. Okay. And then I went back and I got all the Detroit games after Gordie Howe joined the NHL. So I knew I had to start in 1946-47. And I went through every Detroit-Montreal game. And it took me almost a year. And then I found the regular season game in 1949. When Rocket Richard fought all three guys <laughs> on the production line. And I found the game. And I found the newspaper report. And I paid 10 cents for a photocopy. And I photocopied it. And I drove right away to the Gloucester Orleans Sports Club, which was about 20 minutes from where I was in downtown Ottawa. And I went in there and I said, do you have a photocopier and a fax machine? And they said, yes. I said, you need to send this to Connaught Park Raceway and make sure they get it to Doug Harvey because that's where he was living in a caboose at Connaught Park Raceway. And they said, Liam, we'll do it. And I said, give him this second page. That's all the stuff on the Red Sullivan Red Sullivan incident, and I sent, I gave them the two pages, and they sent them to Doug Harvey. I never had another conversation with him. And two years later, the day after Christmas, on 1989, Doug Harvey died. And Red Sullivan's birthday was the day before Christmas in 1929. So he was 70 years old, two days past his 70th birthday, and he was living in Peterborough, and he got the word that Doug Harvey had passed away and he got on a train and he and he took the train to Montreal so he could attend Doug Harvey's funeral. Wow. And like if you 70 years after his birth, 30 years after, you know, 32 years after the Spearing incident and two years and a, and and a couple weeks after their last actual conversation. And here they were brought together by Doug's death. And red went, and uh, I think that's a pretty cool story. Ah, it's a trip, man. It's just, uh, it's wild. It's, it's amazing. Um, you know, the the end of it. You know how it how it wraps up there in the end. You know, and, and all those years yeah. in between, and all the different points that you, you bring up during the story in terms of them. You know, like just becoming player coaches and 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 seeing each other. You know, along that 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 long trip that we go through, which is life, and uh, uh, it's just amazing to. Uh, to think that there, you know, if you can flip it around where, um, you know, Sullivan is, is on his, you know, deathbed in the hospital there. Yeah. And, um, and then you go fast forward and, you know, they get older and stuff. And then he's now seeing, uh, Doug pass away. It's just, uh, 
Uh, it's incredible, man. I have a quick question, really, uh, as far as, you know, those incidents back then, you know, you, you, when you try and, when you when I hear you tell the stories of the old days like that, it's, it's trying to, you know, when you, 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 a lot of the imagery I have, like I said, is black and white, you're kind of thinking of back in those days, and then you kind of think of the modern game, and then I think about, you know, when I was a kid, when I was getting into the point of actually, you know, watching, tracking players, and understanding games, like, you know, as a, you know, whatever it is, an 8, 9, 10, 11-year-old in the, uh, the 70s and then into the 80s as a, as a teenager and beyond. But when you, when you talk about a spearing incident like that, um, my, my, and then hearing this guy go to the hospital and then, you know, you talk about them both going on and continuing their careers and all that other stuff, is, it sounds like such a brutal and how did, how was How was the aftermath handled with that in terms of that game, um, you know, in, in terms of disciplinary action for – a guy like Harvey at that point was there any, or was it was was more or less that hey that was just kind of part of it. The guy lived and they moved on just because it was just the times. No, well, first of all, yeah, there was a there was an almost innocuous suspension given to Doug Harvey. I mean, it was a slap on the wrist, and and uh, Sullivan missed a month of action. I mean, they had to take his spleen out and and sew him up you can imagine uh how 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 serious that that was and and it was a it it was an absolutely a time that people cannot really fathom you know today how violent it was and if you know if um you remember a few weeks back paulie i read you um a quote right out of the right out of the trail of the Stanley Cup, which was exactly verbatim how it was written after that particular brawl, you may recall. And and just the the I mean, the sheer the sheer volume of violence that was that was done to each of these men uh by 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 them like the the you were taking money out of each other's pockets by beating them on the ice and by either eliminating them from the playoffs or knocking them out in the first round or beating them in the Stanley cup final had a massive effect on these men's pocketbooks. So it was a very, very personal, uh, personal thing. And, and, and the feuds became the, not just the feuds, but the rivalries and the intensity on the ice was such that, you know, you can't you can't even begin to uh, to 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 understand just just what it was just what it was like. And in the case of this case, I mean, there was another one. Kenny Reardon and Cal Gardner was another one in the late 40s and 50s that was so bad. Somebody like everybody knew that one of these men could probably die. That's that's how bad it was that uh, Clarence Campbell, the longtime president of the NHL, had to step in uh, and, and tell both men that if they even so much as throw a dirty look at each other going forward, that he was going to throw the book at them and, makes, and, and, and make history in terms, of, uh, in terms of a suspension. You know, he was, he was going to absolutely just, just, just turn, it, turn, it, turn it upside down and, and – uh, um, there were others. There were others. If you go back in time, uh, some some of the rivalries. There's there's footage that is actually has just come out recently. I say recently, probably in the last number of years. It's old film. It's it's a it's man, my God, it's another game. I think between Montreal and the Rangers from 1937. There was a player named Nels Crutchfield 
and he had a feud going with the Cook brothers and the New York Rangers. You must have heard of them. They're on the Rangers' all-time greats. By the way, I should point out to your Ranger faithful there that George Red Sullivan was voted the 66th best Ranger of all time. The guy played barely five years, <laughs> but he was a captain and a coach, and that's how that's the type of impact he had on that organization. But Crutchfield and Cook, and there's video footage of that brawl of the benches emptying and the punches and the cross-checks to the heads that was going on. And people have no idea how violent. I tell this story all the time when they talk to Sprague Claghorn. I've mentioned his name to you a couple of times when they interviewed Sprague in 1950 and, they, and uh, for a retrospective in one of, the, one of the magazines that existed in those days. Sprague, how many fights do you think you were in in your career? And he tilts his head back and takes his thumb and forefinger and he's scratching his chin and he says, well, do you mean just stretcher cases? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that. And I told you also the story about Pierre Pilat. Now, this is in the 1960s. Pierre Pilat played in the 50s and 60s. He's in the Hockey Hall of Fame. He won the Norris Trophy three years in a row. He won a Stanley Cup with Chicago in 1961. He's one of the greatest defensemen to ever play the game. And I did a gig with him at the Rex Steimers Arena in St. Catharines, Ontario, in front of 700 people 20 years ago. And he stood up in front of that crowd and in front of everybody gave me, I think, one of the most amazing quotes of all time. When he told me, he said, Liam, every game I played, I tried to put somebody on a stretcher. <laughs> every game I played. And it was dripping from his mouth, those words, like venom. Like he was channeling it back in time. It's the intense hatred he had for 18 other men every night he put on his equipment. You cannot rationalize that today. You cannot. You cannot. And when Doug Harvey, when Red Sullivan slew-footed him that last time, and Doug Harvey said, I'll see you tomorrow night, Sullivan. In his mind, I believe he said, you may live or you may die, but you're going down tomorrow night. It ends. And 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 that's just <laughs> That was the day. And, and then George gets on a uh, on, on a train and goes to Doug's funeral. Yeah. And that, you know, that in itself just goes about, you know, hockey in general, you know, when you talk about the handshakes that we did a couple of weeks ago after the brutal series and you know, just players in general, the, the emotion of the game and the, and, the, and the hatred that you can build up just as uh, players and, you know, just even whether it's street hockey or whatever, there's all these guys that you hated and you rough each other up. But, you know, th at the end of the day, it's amazing how, you know, at least for the most part, most of the guys you could sit down and still have a drink with after the game. Obviously, there was some, some guys you just couldn't stand. You didn't want to even, you know, look at and talk to. And you've talked about yeah. former players as, as well having those experience. But, you know, the last thing on this here, too, was just the, um, you know, back then, there was just, there was no protection. They didn't have the, no. uh, you know, not only, not so much on the, um, as far as teammates, but as far as just, you know, what they were wearing, what they were wearing out I know. there. And, and just general know. officiating. And, and you bring up a great point, too, which is other stuff that I'd love to get down the road. It's like, is like when the league unionized um, and, and how the guys back then made their money. You know, because it's just it, it, I can only imagine them rolling over in their graves now with the with the money these kids make uh, today, oh, just in terms of signing bonuses, bonuses and everything else, and and more power to them. But back sure. then, back in the day, uh, you know, a, a hockey player, professional hockey player, was pretty much no different than a a guy going in and doing a plumbing job or an electrician or 
it was as a game by game, paycheck by paycheck, uh, you know, um, uh, field of employment. You know, um, so it's it's amazing these uh, these stories that you bring up and, and and taking us back there, and 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 not only the personal stories, the experiences, and the great magic that uh, that's happened on the ice. It's the the personal stories that that are involved with it as well, and how these guys were were being professional hockey players and playing through some of the just, you know, the, the rawest and roughest of times in history back then, you know, especially in the 1900s and then even to the, the 50s and 60s right before, you know, you get into expansion and the league growing and the sport and everything else. So it's fascinating, man. It's, a, it's, it's great stuff. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it is a history of the game, <clears throat> so you can't be a revisionist and go back and try and change it because it happened. And and then the other thing is, too, is that in a lot of cases, you're talking about Hall of Famers. These guys are in the Hall of Fame. And, you know, I mean, uh, Doug Harvey won seven Norris trophies. He's regarded by, in most instances, if he's not the second, he's regarded as the third best defenseman of all time. As far as I'm concerned, it's flip a coin between him and Shore, number two behind Bobby. And so take your pick. And Doug Harvey was on those famous Montreal teams. But, I mean, he 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 led he led the Canadians in penalty minutes a couple of years Pierre Pilat led the NHL in penalty minutes one year. I mean, these guys, Red Sullivan, by the way, was no shrinking violet either. Like he, he, he would go. That's why I said, I gave you the analogy of Brad Marchand. If you push Brad, he'll fight. He will go. He's showing that. Uh, Red's a little bit bigger than Brad, but they played the same way. And I know Brad's extremely talented, but you know, maybe, maybe just a tad more talented than Red, but by 1950 standards, Red Sullivan was scoring either 20 or close to it there in his prime. He led the Hawks twice in scoring. He was captain of the New York Rangers, and and uh, he played for the Bruins. He played over 500 games. I think the guy and the guy just voted the greatest athlete in Peterborough history. He was a hell of a ball player, and and I I just I just think it's a tremendous story. I I think it's a great great story. And yeah, it's it's violent, you know, but you you can't you can't hide from that. You can't hide from it. I'm not trying to champion it as much as I do enjoy fighting. And I think there's a role for it in the game, even still today. I'm not, that's not why I told the story today. I told it today because it, of how it continued over decades and, and how it ended with red going to the funeral. And the fact that the funeral was, you know, Doug died two days after red's birthday when red turned 70. I just find a lot of synergy in that. And I, I just think that's pretty amazing to me. And, and they, they had this connection all those years ago and then then they're united sort of in death, in this case, Doug's. And and you know something? Uh, Red just passed away in January, Pauly. Yeah. He just passed away. He was 89 years old, and he died in January of this year, just three months ago. And and uh, so there you go. So Good stuff, mate. Great tribute and a great story. And uh, I definitely want to go back and look at some of that old footage, too. And it's something that I do after listening to you. I'll, I'll go in and check on some of these uh, players and yeah, look for pictures and stories, but uh, great stuff as always, mate. I love it, and I look forward to the more that we're gonna be doing here as we go forward. Great stuff. All right, mate. So as we always wrap up the show these days, we do a little tribute to the uh, classic traditional Irish music that me and you both love. Back to the yeah. home country. So, uh, what do you have for us today to uh, send us off here? Well, Paulie, you want to speak about history? Uh, very significant date. One of the most significant dates, maybe the most significant date in Irish history, is tomorrow. And 104 years ago tomorrow, several hundred men from various locales in Dublin and in the countryside marched 
into various regions of the city and took up uh, positions of in in the in the various areas uh, under the auspices of the Easter uprising, and they were the Irish volunteers mostly uh, united under the mantra uh, of the uh, the IRB, the Irish Republican Brotherhood, of which my grandfather was one, speaking of Seamus's, as was his name, Seamus James Jim McGuire. And he was one of the men that day, April 24th, 1916, 104 years ago tomorrow, that marched. Now, they knew, they had to know, this was going to be ill-fated and was not going to have the desired effect ultimately. But those men wanted to make a statement for Irish freedom. And five days later, when the rebellion was, was, uh, was squelched by the overwhelming forces of uh, the British Army, the leaders, including Patrick, Padrig, Padrig Pierce, his brother Willie, and 13 others were executed by firing squad in Kilmainham, which is still today a tourist attraction. You can go in Dublin and see it. And they were, they were killed. They were executed, most of them in their late 20s and early to mid-30s, most of them just regular walks of life as jobs. And there was a man from County Antrim who was around in those days, and went to the sitting of the first Irish parliament a couple of years later. And after these leaders were killed, which sparked an uprising in the, uh, not a, like not a, not a, a physical uprising, but now there was groundswell support from, from tip to top in the country for the, the fact that they had taken these men and executed them. And a man named Canon Charles O'Neill, who later became a priest, Father O'Neill. He was from County Antrim, but he became a priest in in uh, in um, Newcastle, uh, Port. Uh, forget it, uh, County Down in County Down somewhere. I forget all the details, but he became a priest. But he wrote, he 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 took what was sort of an, an older version of a song called the uh, or of a of a manuscript called the Foggy Dew, and he wrote um, a version, the lyrics for what would become the song and a song that is symbolic with the Easter uprising, which began 104 years ago tomorrow. So our song today, Polly, will be the Clancy Brothers version. <clears throat> and just for posterity, we're going to play the whole thing and people can check out anytime they want. But what they'll hear in this song is you'll hear Liam Clancy chiming in as if he's one of the people in the streets of Dublin on O'Connell Street on that Easter Monday, 1916, 104 years ago tomorrow. And it's interspersed with uh, Tommy Makeham and, and Patty Clancy and Tommy Clancy singing the Foggy Dew. So it was basically written by Father O'Neill. And and uh, it's a brilliant, It's a, it's a, it's got a haunting... Uh, haunting uh, lyric or what am I trying to say? Paulie is a musician. It's got a haunting sound to it, you know. Melody. It really, yeah. it really does. But, but if you if you can close your eyes and picture what that must have been like, 
1916, those days. And my grandfather was part of it. He was not executed. He was not a leader. He was just one of the soldiers that went. And his whole family before him and several after, um, you know, did their part, did their bit. He's no obviously no long no longer with us either. But um, I'm going to think of him right now as we take this song out. And uh, I thought appropriate to play, given that we're on almost the day, the actual anniversary of the Easter uprising in Dublin and the area in 1916. Great stuff, Liam. I love it. And uh, uh, it's amazing. Uh, what a historic, it, it's a, a huge day in Ireland to uh, recall and remember. And we'll raise the glasses and we'll, uh, we'll toast this song and, and to the lads who uh, lost their lives that day. Great story. So once again, everybody, thanks so much. We'll play this song out. Uh, thanks for listening to Sticks and Taps. And until next time, just stay he- stay safe and stay healthy out there. And uh, cheers again as well to everybody on the front lines out there in the healthcare system and uh, first responders and all that in the military. So uh, thanks again for listening. Liam, do us a favor, man, and say goodbye to everybody. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Really appreciate it. Stay safe, like Paulie said. G'day. It was down the glen one Easter morn To a city fair would I When Ireland's lines of marching men In squadrons had been by The white-dead hum and low battle And on Easter Monday, off they went to the races, to their velvet strands, or got out their pretty frocks for the night's dancing, all in a state of grace after the Easter devotions. This is the way the playwright Sean O'Casey, who was standing on the street that day, saw it all happen. Then down the centre of O'Connell Street, Silent but for the tramp of their feet came hundreds of armed volunteers and Irish citizen army, led by Pierce, Connolly and Tom Clark, to halt, wheel and face the general post office. There go the go-bys, muttered an old man. What the hell are they up to now? They're going in, huh? What for, I wonder? I can't be to buy postage stamps. <laughs> you got... They're taking the clock out of the window. Hold on a minute. They're smashing out the windows with the butts of their rifles. Sending a shower of glass over the heads of the passers-by. That's, that's going beyond the beyonds. That's, that's, that, that's just hooliganism. Wait, there's someone coming out to read a paper. He says, 
he's talking in the name of an Irish Republic. Ah, the police will explain matters. <laughs> will you look at what's coming down O'Connor Street? A company of British lancers in full regalia, with carbines, lances and all, coming to clear the post office. Do you hear the jingle of them? This looks like business. It was England bed or Wildgeese school that small nations might be free. Their lonely graves are by soulless waves on the fringe of the great North Sea. But have they died by tears aside or part with the A lot of our poets wrote about 1916. One of our great poets, William Butler Yeats, wrote a poem called Easter 1916. Too long a sacrifice can make a stone of the heart. When may it suffice? That is heaven's part. Our part to murmur name upon name as a mother names her child when sleep at last has come on limbs that have run wild. What is it but nightfall? No, no, not night, but death. Was it needless death after all? For England may keep faith for all that is done and said. We know their dream, enough to know they dreamed and are dead. And what if excess of love bewilder them till they die? I write it out in a verse, MacDonough and MacBride and Connolly and Pierce, now and in time to be. Wherever green is worn, are changed, changed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. The bravest fell and the sullen fell. For those who died at Easter time in the street. 